just give me a sign. Good morning, everyone. Sorry for the delay. Let's start with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for the beauty of your creation, for all that grows and gives life. May we be faithful stewards of your resources, making sure to distribute to everyone the dignity each person is given. Give us courage and strength to care for all God's people. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining today, and welcome to this Food Justice Forum. I'm Lauren Counts. I'm a member of the Stirring the Waters Ministry, which is um, behind this, this forum today, as well as the Anti-Racism Task Force. And we're here to talk about food. Food is fundamental to our health, to our culture, and to our well-being. Yet, according to the Capital Area Food Bank, one out of 10 residents in the DC region is food insecure, and nearly one third of them are children. And this hunger disproportionately affects communities of color. So we're here to learn about activities today in the community to try and address these issues, the food access issues in underserved neighborhoods in uh, the DC area. So I'd like to introduce our speakers. Katie Chang is the founder of Eats Place, a business incubator and accelerator with a focus on food, community development, and sustainability. Eats Place provides business training programs for entrepreneurs and gives them use of a licensed commercial kitchen and retail space, as well as business support and mentorship. Eats Place's mission is to provide loans and venture capital to farm and food entrepreneurs. And access capital is one of the biggest concerns for small businesses and Allison Powers, who is Director of Economic Opportunities at Capital Impact Partners, a national community development financial institution. She's also my colleague. Uh, capital Impact invests in capital and commitment to help communities break barriers to success, and Allison works to create economic and wealth-building opportunities through equitable food systems, small business support, and cooperative development. And she's currently managing the Nourish DC Collaborative to support strong ecosystems of locally owned food businesses, increase food access, and build vibrant neighborhoods and high quality jobs along the food value chain. So with that, I will start us off with a couple of questions. So please, uh, Katie, can you introduce yourself and tell us about your work? And what are the challenges you are trying to solve in the food ecosystem? Um, hi there, I'm Katie Chang. I am a chef and the founder of Eats Place. Eats Place is a community development financial institution in Washington, D.C. We're also in Maryland and Virginia, and um, we offer business loans, venture capital, as well as uh, technical assistance. We have a kitchen and a, a bar, restaurant, pop-up lab. And um, we really just help farmers and chefs start up their businesses and grow. And through all the challenges that we see, um, you know, the pandemic in itself was very challenging. Um, we just noticed that a real 
it's just shine a beacon on how there was a lack of access to healthful food, fresh food, nutritionally dense food um, for so many in our community, especially um, in you know, Ward 7 and 8 in D.C. And um, I'm, uh, my parents were immigrants, and I'm D.C. born and raised, and it's just been so fascinating seeing all the changes that have happened in the city, and one of um, my big charges is to um, kind of hold the old DC uh, in the light and um, make sure that people don't want to be um, left behind. Thanks for that. And Allison, what, what challenges are you trying to solve? Um, thanks, Katie. I was also born and raised in DC. Uh, shout out to members of the babysitting co-op that helped raise me in the crowd. Um, and really have just seen how much the city has, has grown and changed for both better and worse over the years. Uh, as Katie said, during the pandemic, we really saw um, you know, systemic racism and historical disinvestment really grow in the city, and particularly around food. Um, so, you know, the food sector was one of the hardest hit, and while we're still recovering from the pandemic, there's been additional problems of inflation, shortages of workers. Um, the food industry is really in a huge amount of flux right now, and uh, there's just so many challenges on top of each other that entrepreneurs, especially entrepreneurs of color, that have been disproportionately impacted are really struggling, and some who survived the pandemic are now closing their doors. So what does food justice mean to you? And if you could tell us you know, any personal stories that motivate you in this work. Um, for me, food justice is everything justice. It's a system, and um, it's, it affects everything. It affects the environment, it affects health, it affects the economy. And since my dad was a chef, our corporate name is Baba's Cooking School, and Baba is Mid um, Mandarin Dad. And it's all about what my dad taught me about cooking and about life. And so he uh, worked his way, starting as a busboy, and became a chef and owned restaurants. So I saw firsthand how food can be an instrument for change without a lot of barriers. He, he didn't really speak English. There, he didn't have a language barrier with food. People ate his food and perfectly understood what he was trying to communicate. And um, there's no technology barriers, but the process of starting a business, um, working with your staff, that those are entrepreneurship lessons that anyone can learn through food. It's, it's your street MBA. Um, you learn so much about working with the community, giving back about your finances and, and your customer-based marketing, and uh, that's all through food. Um, I think food is more, just thinking here about, about uh, grocery. Uh, it's more than just the store you shop, it's also your community, it's where you see your neighbors, it's where you see your, you know, take your kids, and, you know, I live in this, this area, and when you wake up on a Sunday morning, you think, hmm, I gotta go to Trader Joe's, Wegmans, Whole Foods, Giant, <laughs> there's kind of an embarrassment of riches in Ward 3, but if you go to Ward 7 and 8, there's four grocery stores for 180,000 people. Um, and so it's really, you know, no matter what zip code you live in, no matter where you're from, being able to access 
healthy food, um, not being able to have to leave your neighborhood for uh, fruit and vegetables and having the same options we have here all throughout the city. And it's the cost of being underserved. Um, so many people will have to get their groceries at a corner store, and it's expensive, and there isn't really a great selection. So it's, it's all, it all adds up, you know, if you don't have a local supermarket grocery store to serve you. So Katie, can you talk a little bit about how Eats Place, the specific work that you do with entrepreneurs, is helping address the food access issues in the district? Yeah, um, I think it's one thing that we're doing, which since it's systemic, it kind of uh, goes around. Um, we are really concerned about displacement through gentrification. And that includes renters, people who have lived there a long time, but it also includes longtime businesses that have been displaced and are serving their community. So Eats Place has a business preservation um, program where we provide loans and grants to businesses to help them stay in place. And whether that means helping them buy their business that they've been renting for a long time or helping them find a new location where their customers can follow them and new customers follow them too because we also work with them for technical assistance, how to revamp their offerings, revamp their marketing and business plan to gain the new customers because as we know, gentrification isn't all bad. Who doesn't want better schools and safer streets? But we want to mitigate the negative effects of that. We want to mitigate the displacement and be able to acknowledge the contributions that people have been in the community been making. So Allison, can you tell us a little bit about um, Nourish DC? Sure. Uh, Nourish DC was a program that launched one year ago in October of 2021. And, you know, some of the reasons we launched the program were some of what we've talked about today. Um, you know, food insecurity, which rose drastically in D.C. during the pandemic, but rose disproportionately among families of color, particularly black families in the city, uh, you know, food access, which we talked about, and small business. Nourish D.C., let's see. ecosystem of locally owned food businesses in DC uh, with a focus of, on uh, entrepreneurs of color. Uh, we're really focused on neighborhoods that are underserved by grocery and other food services, which is kind of code word for Word 5, 7, and 8. Over, so Nourish DC is a, a collaborative of community development financial uh, financial institutions and technical assistance providers. We work with Ease Place, Dreaming Out Loud, Washington Area Community Investment Fund, Latino Economic Development Corporation, and City First Enterprises. We all work as a collaborative to provide lending, technical assistance, and grants to food businesses in DC. We're thinking about food businesses very holistically, everything from catering to uh, an urban farm, food hub, a grocery store, a restaurant, and by working together, we can provide loans of everything from $500 to $10 million, and we have provided over $14 million in loans in the past year. Um, we also provide technical assistance. Katie mentioned she has a commercial kitchen, and many of our other partners have special food incubator programs to kind of help not only businesses start up to 
but get to the next level. And we've served over 160 food businesses in the past year. And we also have grants. Um, last year, we awarded over $400,000 in grants, and we just launched a second round, which is going to be $500,000 to food businesses in DC. Okay, so these are, uh, just wanted to give you all some visuals on some of the folks we've served. Uh, to the left, you see Flavorture, which is a Ward 7-based business run by these two chefs, Pinky and Chef Mac, and they have been working out in a uh, church like this one in the basement, and their business is really growing. They're planning to open a restaurant shortly, and they needed money for expansion and marketing, and uh, they're very committed to hiring folks in, in Ward 7 and really committed to the growth of their community and serving health and also flavorful food. They're, I would highly recommend them if you have an event. We use them for almost all of ours. Uh, so that's one example of, of someone who received a grant in 2021. In the middle is Three-Part Harmony Farm. They're actually the largest urban farm in DC. They're in Ward 5 on land that is owned by Catholic University. And uh, they're a small plot of land that is run incredibly efficiently. And they have a CSA for over 100 families in Ward 5. Almost all the folks that, that get food from the farm are in walking distance from the farm. And they applied for a grant for a hoop house in order to extend their, their growing season both earlier and later. So they're still growing food now. Um, and that's, they put that up about two months ago. And on the right, you see one of our partners, LEDC, has a Food Ventures Initiative. This is a group of entrepreneurs that are trying to launch, get registered with the city, launch their food businesses this year. So our partners kind of take them through that process. And through Nourish DC, we support them getting incubator kitchen space to you know, help test out their business and their products. So you can see this cohort right now that is, is looking to launch. That's the end. So, oh, and that's just um, a slide about, yeah. about Katie. Yeah. So Katie, what are the opportunities that you see, <clears throat> despite all these challenges, the opportunities you see for the entrepreneurs you're serving? Um, there's so many opportunities. Whenever the economy takes a turn, people get creative, they hustle, they start thinking, what can we do? We've always wanted to start a business. and. Um, Having that dream doesn't go away, it only gets stronger, and it's so important to be able to help people look beyond um, you know, the four C's of credit, right? You want to look beyond people's credit score. You want to look at their other C's like character, their contribution to the community, um, all kinds of things like that. When you support a local business, it's part of that circular economy and it'll support your community. And so there's always an opportunity for food um, to grow and food is defined in so many broad ways. And that's why I really think it's important to maybe look at this gentrification, but think of it as something that can be regenerative. How can we use these opportunities of um, new people coming in, more money coming in, and use it to help um, the people who are all here already? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody who runs a commercial kitchen last week, and they were just saying, you know, they've always been full, but their waiting list is growing and growing, and, and part of the reason is because a lot of the people who worked in a restaurant or in the food industry in some way thought, 
you know, I want to start my own business. I want to be my own boss. And uh, I think this is a time of great creativity. Basically, if you've survived the past three years, you've had to really pivot your business plan and think about how you can be a success uh, moving forward into the future. And I think that we're also thinking a lot about workers and uh, wealth building and equity and what that means. There's been a lot of movement around worker co-ops in DC. That's just, you know, a sign of the times that people are, are thinking a lot about equity in the industry. What is, what is 82? <laughs> The tipped wage worker. Yes, um, it's uh, that's what it is. It's for a tipped wage. It's to help people earn a living wage. And like what Allison was saying, you know, that is maybe part of the solution. But another part is something that's more long-lasting. Having an actual ownership stake, um, being able to help start a business and contribute to it long-term um, is also. Uh, I you know, 82 is something that we talk about a lot. But I don't want it to get in the way of like other solutions that can possibly be more um, far thinking, um, impactful, but um, yeah. So uh, we have a hard stop at 11, so I'm gonna migrate to questions. I'm gonna bring the mic down. If you can walk down here to ask your question, that's better for the video. Okay, anyone who wants to ask a question, can you come up here, please? Hi, thanks so much for coming and talking to us about this incredibly important issue. I'm not as familiar with the worker co-ops that you talked about, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what they're forming around and, um, and, and how they work. Um, I'm also interested, sort of as a secondary question, in hearing, uh, you pointed out that we have an embarrassment for riches here in Ward 3. We have no food deserts up here. How can we best, as a church and as individuals, support the kinds of things that you all are doing to help bring more food equity more equitably across our city. Thank you. With the co uh, so worker co-ops uh, have been around for a long time. It's basically when a group of workers own the business collectively and it can, you know, I think the, the people, the vision people have in their head is people sitting around a room making decisions. It can also look a lot like a traditional management structure, but instead of um, you know the profits kind of all go back to the business and back to the workers, so there is this wealth building opportunity, and uh, the workers ultimately make the the decisions about the business instead of outside shareholders. So this is you know it's been around for a while, but it's growing, especially in among immigrant communities and, and uh, women-owned businesses, communities of color, it's really seen as a way to, you know, especially as home ownership gets more out of reach, it is a opportunity for people to own their business and it is growing, especially in care industries and food sectors. So, you know, home care, child care, food, and, and really thinking about how this can be a bit of, a, of an industry shift. And it is growing in DC, but Places like San Francisco and New York are a little further along in, in the work. And before I pass it on to Katie, I'll say ways to get involved. Um, you know, all of our partner organizations, which are all kind of on the, the, the bottom of this slide, 
Um, I mean, there is opportunities to donate. Um, there's also volunteer opportunities. Uh, Dreaming Out Loud, particularly, which is one of our partners that does a lot of technical assistance in Ward 7 and 8. They have some great volunteer opportunities at their farm, Kelly Miller Farm, which is right next to uh, Kelly Miller Junior High. Uh, they have days where you can go there, you can volunteer at their CSA, which aggregates food from black farmers all over the region. Uh, so that's a really good opportunity. And uh, you know, if you all know any sort of foundations or, or corporations or other folks that might be interested in that work, it'd be great to to get those, um, you know, networks or, or referrals. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I um, put your money where your heart is. Um, volunteer, donate, help um, them fundraise, and also definitely support the local businesses, not just food businesses, but um, other local businesses because they contribute so much back to the community, back to um, they hire locally, and they're real people supporting families. And I just think it's it's so great to um, volunteer, get your hands in the dirt, and we teach people how to make everything we make, how to um, brew beer and bake bread. And people are like, well, but you also sell this. How can you do this? Well, it takes several days to make a loaf of bread, and people realize the value in that once they do it. And I'll just also add quickly that I think as a, a Ward 3 resident myself and somebody who went to John Eaton and Alice Steele and Wilson, now in Jackson Reed High School, um, you know, we can be insulated in this community. And, uh, you know, I think that although I did go to schools with kids from all over the city and really saw how zip code determined future, it wasn't so much how hardworking or smart you were, it was it was more of a, you know, where were you born and, and what opportunities were presented, but I, I don't think it was till later where I was really, you know, able to, to do work in Ward 7 and 8 where I realized really how different it was to grow up here and grow up there, and uh, so just encourage everybody to, to you know, get out of our bubble here. So you did have a question, so. Uh, I would like to know um, how how you train young people to become restaurant, not necessarily restaurant owners, but restaurant workers. Um, well, we have a lot of different programs. One of them is our pop-up program. So we have a turnkey kitchen and bar where a aspiring restaurateur can come without really any risk to themselves. They're not locked in a long-term lease. They don't have to buy any capital equipment. We provide it all, and they can open up their restaurant. And of course, we have a staff, and we can help them, but we always say, who can sell mama's meatballs better than mama? So they bring people in their community to help them open their restaurant. And so, you know, it's a local sommelier, it's a local bartender, it's a local wait staff, and they all get trained together, and the idea is that then they can graduate through this program and then open up their own place in the city. This is probably very basic, but is there a common definition of food insecurity, and how is it measured? I think that... Oh, go ahead. 
Um, there, are, there are a lot of definitions. Um, uh, the USDA has one, the Census Bureau has one, the district government has its own, and um, the one that we're working off, I think, is like the broadest one as much as possible of um, having, a, having a lack of access to fresh, healthy food at a reasonable price point. Um, is there? Yeah, I mean, I would say if, if you want to get granular, if you Google supermarket tax incentives, DC, <laughs> you'll see that the way the district, uh, the map of the district, and there'll be blue areas which are, you know, the district defines as having low access to grocery and other food districts. And, you know, spoiler alert, it's all Ward 7 and 8, and most of Ward 5, and then pockets of uh, other wards. But you can kind of see the map, and then you can also um, type in addresses to see if an address is in one of these areas. Yeah, and this is what I was talking about, how it's a system, because the places that have chronic health issues are going to be the places that have a lack of food access, the, place, the places that have, like, the lowest median income. It's all related. Um, so I gather that uh, food insecurity, food justice is not purely about a dearth of uh, grocery stores in a given neighborhood. What, what roles do restaurants and I suppose specialty food places like bakeries uh, play in creating a vibrant community? Um, I think they're an integral part. They're they're um, a cornerstone to creating that community. A restaurant often acts as a third space where the community can come gather. Um, we opened right in the middle of our neighborhood instead of being like a big industrial space because we felt it was really important for people to come to the space and feel like it was their space. Um, forever, there was like a community fire where people could come bring their bread to bake. So a restaurant space is so important for that sense of place and gathering and all also in terms of hiring local employees and using local farms for sourcing. Yeah, and I, I would say a lot of the applicants that we get for our grants are, are um, informal businesses that are trying to you know, figure out how to get their license and formalize, and there's a lot of folks that you know cook out of their kitchen or... <laughs> And I do think churches play an important role um, in all of this because a lot of, uh, you know, churches and different religious centers have been kind of incubators for businesses who get off the ground and the congregation is a built-in uh, built audience. But um, in general, I think that, you know, restaurants and, and food services are going to, um, you know, a lot of times there's, there's a lack of access to those in the same areas where you're thinking of health outcomes, education, grocery stores, all the other social determinants of health. This is like way down on the list of like holistic things, I understand, but um, is it your sense on 82 that voting for it on balance helps issues of equity or does not, or is not gonna matter one way or the other? Uh, thanks. Um, I'm officially not supposed to have a stance on 82, but I do believe that every bit helps. Um, you know, I, you don't want to say, I don't want to um, be equitable in this respect because we're doing this. You know, I think every little bit helps in equity. Yes. 
Toyota. Are, are the uh, big supermarkets not a key toward food equity in seven and eight because they're pricing out of of the reach of, uh, of customers, um, what what role does drawing supermarkets into seven and eight help the problem, not solve the problem? Um, I think it's a, a key to the problem, but not the only part of it. Uh, and I think there's a lot of common misconceptions about why grocery stores do or don't vote in neighborhoods. I know one of the, you know, they do market studies and assessments whenever a grocery store is going to move into the neighborhood. And one of the, the biggest determinants places like Trader Joe's use is, does, do the residents have a college degree? Um, so there's a lot of things that are uh, biases that are, are baked into these so-called unbiased market reviews that really determine, you know, who gets grocery, who doesn't. Uh, you know, the administration and Bowser has put a lot of money into incentives that will help to get grocery stores, and they did just open a store in Ward 7, uh, which is exciting, but I think there's a lot of, of factors and myths of of why grocery doesn't, you know, does and doesn't get in certain areas, but it's just one piece. There also needs to be a lot of the other, um, you know, vibrant small local businesses and corner stores that are selling healthy food and and CSAs and, and working with local farms and all the other things that is gonna make a vibrant ecosystem. And a local food operator might not use that criteria, which is why I think it's important to support local entrepreneurs. They would know maybe like this place would be a wonderful place for a grocery store. There's a need there and the market would be amazing. Um, so it just, it's another cost of being underserved. You'd have to drive really far out. Gas is really expensive now to even get groceries and you should be shopping for groceries regularly. So it all adds up. If you could speak to the to the jobs aspect of the food um, economy. Um, the food economy is so broad, there's so many jobs, and one thing people often ask me is, well, why are you encouraging the, you know, somewhat manual jobs or jobs that don't require a lot of um, um, training and things like that, and I think that Every job is an important job, and um, oftentimes that is some people's path to management. They start, my dad started as a busboy. You have to start somewhere, and you know, when you can prove your, your aptitude and get trained, it's so important to provide on-the-job training because um, there aren't, it's not necessary necessarily to go to culinary school to, to learn how to be a chef and um, or operate a business. You don't have to have an MBA. Sometimes you can just get trained to do it through the act of um, doing it every day. And I think there's a huge question that people are asking right now. I mean, everybody's talking about quality jobs, quote-unquote quality jobs. Uh, what does that mean? And how do you quantify that and how do you measure that? That's actually one of our metrics from uh, through Nourish DC, which is primarily funded by the Department of Economic Development in DC. Because, um, you know, in this time where there's been a mass exodus of workers that are leaving uh, the food industry, it's, it's really thinking about how do you not only get workers, but how do you retain them? How are there paths for you know, growth, how do you think about not only wages, but 
healthcare and mental health and training and professional development and you know knowing your rights and um, it's so it's you know the jobs are so critical because people not only you know don't want to leave their community for food they don't want to leave their community for jobs and so if you've also got a robust food economy in a neighborhood you're also going to have local jobs and hopefully will be jobs that have a good wage, have growth, have maybe, you know, if you think about a co-op, have ownership. Um, and so the jobs part is, is really key. It is. A lot of the training we provide is financial literacy, and it's often not the business owner who's taking these classes. It's often the cashier, and that's another way of them um, learning some real skills. Excuse me, I wanted to ask about uh, to what extent uh, affordable or accessible Wi-Fi is available to people in 7 and 8, which is so critical now in uh, grocery shopping for a lot of people. It would allow for food to be brought to the neighborhood if they could have some sort of, you know, degree that would show it was safe to come to their house. But um, so I'm, that's what I'm asking, what's being done about that? to give people affordable Wi-Fi, which to me is a sign of wealth. Wealth building helps build wealth. I know the city is doing a lot of um, uh, uh, property ownership programs, both uh, residential and commercial. And then um, a lot of the organizations there help businesses um, build wealth. Um, we also have our business preservation program at East Place. Um, yeah, and I'll say that there's, it's been interesting, you know, so many of Grocery Now is done online and uh, that's something, I know that some of the smaller stores, like we have a grocery chain that's more locally owned and maybe under four stores, is it can be the platforms and the startup costs can be really expensive. And so, um, and then you've also got to think of, do folks in the community, are they gonna shop online? Is that gonna be a good option for me? So I think it's something that people are wrestling with a lot right now and something that the big corporations have an advantage in to set up. I think with that, we've, we've hit our time. I want to thank our presenters on educating us on this very important topic this morning. Thank you for having us.